podcast has bad words. <laughs> Welcome, everyone. This is Ask the Minimalists number 22. As you can see, I'm solo today. And this is just for our true fans on Patreon. So the 500 of you who are our best supporters, well, you really help us out a lot. And we're really grateful for that. So uh, we did Ask the Minimalist Anything 21 a month ago, me and Ryan. Ryan is actually out of town right now. He is helping his grandma. His, his grandfather died and he's doing a, a sort of packing party for his grandma and her 80-something years of stuff. They're uh, working on selling her house, and so he's going through this this whole experience, and uh, I'm sure he'll be back very soon to talk about it. We'll talk about it on the podcast. We'll actually probably talk about it on Patreon because uh, it seems like uh, from the many times I've talked to him over the last month, a lot of emotional experiences going on that he didn't really anticipate. And so I'm looking forward to sort of interviewing him in a way to figure out what did he learn, what did he not expect, and what lessons did his grandma learn, and what what wisdom can he impart on me and, and then by proxy on to you. But I have your questions here today, so we're going to answer your questions. They were specifically, most of them were tailored to me. Because I'm by myself, I might be able to answer all the questions that you asked. I think we have about a dozen of them that you asked this week. And so we'll start with Madeline here. Just curious, as you guys amass more and more fans, how do you take a minimalist approach to fame? Do you ever struggle with balancing rightful pride and the truly good and needed things you've created and accomplished and the less attractive kind of pride? You know, when I first read this question, I thought about the Avit brothers. They uh, they have the song, like, I-, I want the kind of pride. There's a line in one of their songs. I want the, the kind of pride that my mother had, not the kind in the Bible that makes you feel bad. Um, and so the, the pride is a sin is really what they're saying versus like the good kind of pride, which is Madeline is saying here. And I think it's okay to feel pride or if you want to use a different word because that word is too charged to, to feel good, just feel good from a sense of accomplishment. And I think pursuing fame by itself is a fruitless pursuit because it's just always going to up the threshold for trying to get more and more of of that thing. And by the way, you don't see the, all the downsides of that. Now, weirdly, Ryan and I are at this, this strange place of we're not famous people, but we have the attention of a relatively large group of people. We're not famous for the sake of being famous. We are simply adding value to people's lives and helping people solve problems. And when you do that, more and more people get value from it and they share it with their friends and their family. I think that feels great to be able to do that, to be able to contribute beyond yourself in a meaningful way. So that's really how I delineate it. If I'm doing it just for me, then I might experience short-term blips of pleasure, the sort of dopamine rush that you'll experience, right, from... Well, uh, getting a retweet on Twitter or, or having someone share something a thousand times on Facebook or liking a post that you put up. But that's so ephemeral. That, that's pleasure. And I really think there's a difference between pleasure and happiness and contentment and joy. And I don't have, a, I don't have the time to go through all four of those right now, but uh, we're working on a new book. It's called Love People Use Things. And I'm going to be talking about that in that book uh, and, and really going into detail about the difference between pleasure, happiness, joy, and contentment. And what I'll say is this. Happiness isn't the point. And fame isn't 
the point. When those things become the point, that's when it becomes dangerous. That's when it becomes rapacious. That's when it becomes something I certainly don't want to pursue. I think the point is living a meaningful life and figuring out how do we do that. Well, it's aligning our actions with our values. And for me, my my foundational values are health, relationships, creativity, growth, and contribution. And if I'm living a life that aligns with that and it affects other people, then yeah, you're going to have the attention of the masses, not of everyone. Not even 1% of the world knows who Ryan and I are, but millions of people do happen to know who we are. I'm much more concerned with helping fewer people, diving deep amongst those few people as opposed to just garnering fame for the sake of being popular. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't excite me at all. In fact, it, it, it sounds empty. It sounds vapid. It sounds like something that I don't want to participate in. All right, our next question is from Mariah or Maria. Maria says, should one prioritize creating a simpler closet, although it takes time and it costs a, it costs a lot for quality, or use up the clothes one has and thrift when needed? Well, I don't think there's a blanket answer to this. I guess the, the answer would be what is appropriate for you. So I would answer your question with a question. I think it certainly makes sense to shop in your own closet, especially with most of us. The average American right now throws away 88 pounds of clothes a year. Now, you may not be throwing them away directly. You might donate it to the local Goodwill or, or whatever, and that can be helpful. But let's face it, there are, there are already enough clothes out there. And quite often, you can go shopping in your own closet. That's why I really like Courtney Carver's Project 333. I would encourage you to check that out. It's just project333.org. It's finding your favorite 33 pieces of clothing, including accessories, and using that over the next three months. So taking three months, 33 items... You can definitely do that. And what you realize, you pick out only your favorite items, right? You're not, uh, you're not going to find that oversized pink sweatshirt with the weird sort of tassels on one sleeve. You're going to opt to not be trendy, but you can still be stylish. In fact, I don't think style has a whole lot to do with trends. Trends are following what everyone else is doing right now. There are, of course, things that are timeless, now, they're not truly timeless. When I say timeless, I mean timeless within our lifetime, right? You can go back to, I was born in 1981, and, and there, I'm sure there were famous people who were wearing uh, uh, all black outfits in, in 1981, right? You, 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 you can go back 100 years and, and maybe even find it. But on a long enough timeline, you know, guys were wearing kilts, and that would not be uh, a timeless outfit for today. Heck, it might be trendy though, right, Sean? I'm not sure. Sean's wearing a kilt right now. Looks great on you. Um, but I, yeah, I would opt, if I have a whole closet full of clothes, I would opt to go shopping in that closet first. And then I would augment it with, uh, it doesn't mean don't buy new things, obviously. I would augment it with new things that I'm going to bring into my life as it's appropriate, as I need them, as they serve a purpose or bring me joy or contentment in, in some way. All right, our next question here is from Jasmine. Jasmine says, I'm moving in with my partner, both learning minimalists that want to only bring the things that add value to our home and 
any tips while we shop to furnish the place or things that you don't recommend buying that seemed fitting for every quote standard household? Yeah, in our book, Everything That Remains, in fact, in our documentary, Minimalism, I'm reading from that book. And there's a, a scene in the book where my marriage had just ended and, and my mother had died. And, and while uh, the, the line in there is, while Rome is bur- burning, there's somehow time for shopping at Ikea. And so I think, unfortunately, what we often do is we prioritize things that we think we need or that other people tell us that we need, whether it's friends, family, or usually it's just through through marketing efforts, right? So some companies are telling us, well, you have to have the throw pillow. You have to have the bath mat. You have to have the runner uh, at your front entrance. You have to have the credenza, the sideboard. You have to have the sound bar for your TV. Hell, you have to have a TV. No, you don't. You don't have to have a couch. You don't have to have a coffee table. You don't have to have a desk. You don't even have to have a bed. Now, if you go see the home tour that we did of, of my place, I own a lot of those things. But Bex and I, when we moved to LA with Ella, we decided to slowly populate our space after, after temporarily depriving ourselves. So what would I encourage you to do, Jasmine? Temporarily deprive yourself. Minimalism is not about deprivation. But if you go into an empty space, you are already complete in that empty space. And then you're just bringing in the things that will truly serve a purpose that will augment enhance, or enhance your experience of life. And the other things you'll realize pretty quickly like, wow, maybe I didn't need all those things that I thought I needed. And ultimately, I think that is the, that is the message of minimalism. You probably don't need that. All right, our next question is from Mikey Mike Mo. <laughs> All right, Mikey Mike Mo. How do you keep a reasonable amount of things for your child? I know, quote, enough is different depending on the family. You've mentioned encouraging your daughter to donate toys, but you are that that you are you you mentioned encouraging your daughter to donate toys, but are you doing or, but are you doing that when a toy box is filled? Are you? This is too many sentences, Mikey, Mike, Mo. We said two sentences, right? I'm going to cut it off there. Um, here, here's the thing with uh, with Ella. No, I'm not. I mean, I have OCD, right? Like, and so it'd be easy for me to go in there and, and truly monitor. Well, you have 17 toys, and the average American child plays with only 12 daily, and so we need to get rid of five of these toys. No, it's not really like that. It's fluid. And what I try to do is I try to have conversations with her. Now it's hard because Ella just turned six and and I might think, well, you're not really using that anymore, but she still has a blanket from five years ago that she enjoys using every day. And what I really try to do is not pry things out of her hands, but f- help her figure out why letting go makes space for new things, whether that's new experiences, new toys, new art supplies. And I also try to help her bring in toys that she can actually have an experience with. It's not just a, another cheap plastic thing from Walmart. Those things are okay sometimes too. We have some cheap plastic things from Walmart. But most of the things that we bring in, she can have an experience with those. So whether it's artwork where she's creating or uh, we just had our birthday party this past weekend. 
and uh, she got this mermaid tail. She wanted to be a mermaid, and so we had her birthday party at a a local. Uh, indoor swimming pool place and she got to use that mermaid tail with the flipper and swim around all weekend and but we also took some art supplies and we created pin the tail on the mermaid which was like the made this drawing and we drew the top the mermaid and then there was like a mermaid tail that all the kids got to pin you know we, we blindfold them spun them around and and we had a lot of fun with creating it but also the f- experience of actually playing the game itself so a lot of the toys that we bring in, I try to help her identify when it's appropriate for her to let go. But just because I think it's appropriate to let go doesn't mean that she's going to find it. That said, at the end of the day, ultimately I have I have ultimate veto power, uh, Bex and I do. And if we do find that, okay, you have too many things right now, then we try to involve her in the discussion and say, hey, we're going to be getting rid of some things. You help us together do this. Because... It's cause she's going to learn a whole lot more if I'm in there and Bex is in there having the discussion as opposed to, all right, Bex and I, while you were at school today, we just uh, we grabbed 40 of your toys and we donated them. Too bad for you. What do you learn from that? Nothing. In fact, what she'll learn is that um, minimalism sucks. Simplicity sucks. And these people are depriving me of what I want what's going to add value. No, I think it's a whole lot more about the conversation. Now, is that more difficult? Of course it is. It's way more difficult, but it is way more worthwhile. And I think it's setting her up for success in the long run. Of course, I'll have to report back 12 years from now when she's graduated high school and I'll let you know. All right, Paul says, hey, Josh, are you much of a re-reader? If so, what books do you gravitate back to often? I'm not much of a rereader, but there are some things, especially resources on, on writing. So, um, uh, who wrote the book, uh, the, the Clarity and Style book? Was that Robert A. Harris? Yeah, yeah. So, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. That's one that I, I teach in my writing class, howtowritebetter.org. Um, also, there's a new writing book, which I'm sure I'll, I'll, I'll return to, uh, Klinkenborg. Uh, Verlin Klinkenborg wrote a book called Several Short Sentences, no, S- Several Short Sentences About Writing, I think. Such a good book. I'm, I know I'll go back to that. So more reference books I go back to. Also, most of the, the work of David Foster Wallace I go back to repeatedly. Uh, Bex and I were just reading from his short story collection, Oblivion, yesterday. It, it's funny. I, I often, uh, during the podcast, will talk about here's our David Foster Wallace segment. I feel like he predicted so many things that were going to happen in the future, these sort of uh, corporatiz- corporatization of America and of the Western world. So his book, Infinite Jest, every year is no longer a year. So like right now we're in the year 2019, but instead it's a it's a sponsored year. So instead of saying 2019, we would say in the year of the depend adult undergarment or the year of tide. And while it's a parodic exaggeration, it's a, the terminus of where we're going with with a lot of this, it does seem now that we are we're so heavily mediated, so heavily advertised to 
Sean and I, podcast Sean and I were looking at a website earlier today. We couldn't even look at the website. The entire thing was an advertisement that I had to click out of. There was an advertisement video. There was an advertisement banner that took up maybe what, four fifths of the page, not to exaggerate. And then when I finally got out of the video and then the banner, there were ads all along the sidebar. And of course, in the bottom as well, it was just one giant ad. I'm just trying to read some text and there are advertisements everywhere. And that's the beautiful, beautiful thing about Patreon. You help us keep everything that we do advertisement free because yes, Ryan and I do need a sustainable business model. We need to be able to pay Jordan No More and Podcast Sean and Jessica to do what they do to help us out, but also other people to help us do what we do. And then, oh, by the way, there's nothing wrong with earning a living. I just prefer to do so without having advertisements all over our podcast, all over our website. That just doesn't align with my values. So I feel like David Foster Wallace predicted that. So I hold on to his his books. Uh, Jonathan Franzen, um, two of his books uh, in particular, uh, the Corrections, and especially Freedom. I think Freedom is possibly my favorite book of all time. Uh, if not if not number one, it's certainly up there. And then some of the most gorgeous writing of all time is from a woman named Mary Carr. She is a poet, but also a memoirist. Some of my favorite books of hers are her three, or some of my favorite books, period, are her three memoirs. They're really, really beautiful. Uh, Cherry, Lit, and The Liar's Club are those three books. You can check those out. She also wrote a book about writing memoirs called The Art of Memoir. Those are all books that I go back and reference. But I, I try to read new books mostly. So uh, on my phone here, I have uh, an app, uh, just the Kindle app. And so if I'm waiting at line, I don't have social media on my phone. So if I'm waiting in line at Chipotle or something, I just pull up the Kindle app and we'll read a page or two pages. Or if I'm done writing for the day, I'll go out, uh, take a walk to a local coffee shop and I'll read for an hour. And I can do it right from my phone. That way I don't have to um, carry around a separate book or, or something like that. Although I'll put the phone on airplane mode so I don't get distracted because it's so easy for me to just say, well, I'll just check text messages real quick. Or why don't I hop on the web browser and I'll, I'll look at uh, what's going on in the news. And before I know it, 45 minutes later, I'm like, what am I doing with my life? I didn't get any reading done. And so um, there's a, a website that I follow. Um, I think it's called Farner Street. They, they had this, uh, I think it's fs.org, maybe fs.blog. That's what it is. But anyway, they, they had this thing about uh, if you want to read more, just read 25 pages a day. Make that your objective for the day. And uh, I do that most days. I, I read 25 pages. It's not a whole lot. It's a lot for me. I'm actually a, a considerably slower reader than, than most people. And so 25 pages is a task, but I make it a priority because I find that my life is enriched by that. Not if I just do it once, but if I'm doing it repeatedly, I'm reading a whole lot more books. I tend to read one or two books at a time, usually a fiction book and a nonfiction book and alternate between the two. And then occasionally, um, not occasionally, honestly, pretty much every night, uh, Bex and I will read a book together. I tend to read it out loud in bed until she falls asleep. And then she starts twitching. That's how I know she's fallen asleep. And I've just read five or six pages in vain because she doesn't remember any of it the next day. And we have to rewind five or six pages back. All right. Our next question is from Kareem. Oh, wait, uh, Kareem, we'll get to your question in a second. Beth says, do you ever find yourself being your own worst critic? If so, how do you handle it? Um, yes and no. I'm probably not my own worst critic anymore because I'm I'm fairly rational, and I have a lot of irrational critics uh, who will get on 
on Instagram or Twitter or whatever. We call them seagulls. And so I don't find that I'm a seagull of myself. Seagulls, they just swoop in, they shit on you and they fly away. They don't add any value whatsoever, right? That's not a, I'm not that kind of critic toward myself, but I am a, a harsh judge of my own creations. I remember when we first started the podcast. I, I remember when we first started, Ryan and I would often record, and Sean can attest to this, we would record four, sometimes six episodes for every one episode that we published. Now, I know Jordan's over there. He, he never got to experience those first two or three years of the podcast. But it was you know, it was audio only, and we just weren't happy with it. But we you, you, you get good at something over time. Or when we first started doing touring back in 2011, we'd go to an event, and you know, two people would show up, eight people would show up, 10 people would show up. And it wasn't us really getting up and giving a, a talk. We weren't really prepared for that. We were having discussions with people. It was almost having like a, strangely, I look back at it and I think it was, it was a focus group. And so I like to delineate criticism from feedback. I, I find that criticism provides the problem, shows you what the problem is. But feedback provides the problem with a potential solution or set of potential solutions. And so am I a critic in that sense where I just, give myself problems? Sometimes, yeah. And that's unfortunate because I don't find it to be very productive. But most of the time, if I just show up with a problem, I'll then ask myself, what's the solution to this? Sometimes the solution, in fact, quite often the solution is to just delete. Don't be so precious about anything. That includes the objects that I have in my life, the stuff, but of course the creations as well. So with the podcast, we got better over time and maybe we started recording three podcasts for every one we put out. And then it was two and now... Most of the time we record something, we actually end up putting it out because we've put in hundreds, if not thousands of hours at this point of recording ourselves, having conversations on mic. You don't just you know, hop out of the womb with a microphone in your hand and, and expect to be eloquently didactic. It doesn't work that way. It requires a whole lot of hours. Now, what you see is is the end product of that. If I write a book, you don't see the 700 pages, literally. Well, I think everything that remains is about 700 plus pages, 750 pages at one point. You don't see the, the five or 600 pages that don't get published. You see the end result. You see the tip of the iceberg. You see the end result of all the feedback, the criticism, the self-criticism, et cetera. So some of that can be helpful. Some of that can fuel you as long as it provides solutions instead of just coming to the table with a whole bunch of problems. All right, I think we'll get to Kareem's question now. When do you let go of an item that is useful but not essential? I find that there are certain items in my life that are helpful, but life would be totally fine without it. Say, for example, an Apple Watch. Yeah, I don't think an Apple Watch would be useful for me. In fact, it might be the opposite. I think we have to identify what is valuable and what is imaginary value. For me, an Apple Watch would be imaginary value, meaning I could justify having it, but it's not actually adding value to my life because of the opportunity cost of that thing. And so what we're really talking about when we're talking about imaginary values or adding value to our lives yeah, we can justify anything. We're, we're Human beings are so good at justifying bringing anything into our life. Yeah, I'll just eat that one piece of cake or whatever. And then you, that's, that's fine. Eating a piece of candy, there's, there's no problem with doing that for most people. The problem is the repeated behavior. When our primary diet is eating chocolate cake every day, 
That's calories without nutrition. And the Apple Watch is the same thing for me. It's a whole bunch of calories. It's garnering my attention without actually nourishing me mentally, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. It's just getting in the way. But it adds faux value to my life. And so ultimately, I have to be honest with myself. You can say, yeah, this thing isn't essential. I don't think something has to be truly essential for you to bring it into your life. If that was the case, I probably wouldn't have a couch in my home. It's not truly essential, but it does truly add value to my life. Now, I figured that, on, I figured that out only after going without a couch for several years, actually. And uh, when Ryan and I were on tour in 2014, we stayed at a lot of people's houses and in their spare bedrooms or uh, garages and uh, where they had you know a couch or, or something set up, and I realized that I actually missed having a couch, and I could bring one back into my life deliberately after going without it for a while and figuring out what did add value to my life. That couch did add value to my life, but I didn't bring back in the three hundred thousand items that the average American household has. I brought in a few of those items that will enhance my life. Of course, results may vary, and so you have to figure out what is appropriate for you. And I think sometimes the best way to do that is to temporarily deprive yourself. That's why Ryan did his packing party over three weeks. He boxed up everything he owned and unpacked only the items he needed over the course of 21 days, realizing like, wow, most of these things I thought I needed, I didn't actually need at all. Lindsay asks, I have been on my minimalism journey for a bit and I find it is increasingly difficult to find things I love enough to bring into my home. We'll get back to that word in a second, Lindsay. I'm in the market for some speakers for my living room and having a hard time finding some that check all the boxes. Do you have go-to brands for electronics or speakers that you prefer? Um, again, what is appropriate for me may not be appropriate for you. Now, I can appreciate this question on one result because you're saying, hey, Josh, you're, you, you're really intentional about the things you bring into your life. Just tell me what to buy. I can't tell you what to buy. I don't know what is going to serve you best. That's why we don't do ads because, you know what? A Casper mattress might be great. It didn't work for me. I actually tried one at one point and it hurt my back. But imagine if I brought Casper mattress onto our... Uh, onto our podcast. And I'm like, well, yeah, try a Casper mattress. I don't know if it's going to, even if it did work for me. Uh, my daughter, uh, Ella has, uh, I think it's called bear is, is the brand Then we did a, a brand episode not that long ago. Do you remember the title of that one, Sean? Um, it was favorite things. That's what it was called. So we'll put a link to that, uh, below. We did an episode about our favorite things with the caveat that my favorite things probably won't be your favorite things. There might be some overlap if you did a Venn diagram or whatever. I use some speakers at home. I use some Sonos speakers and and they're solid. They work really well. Bex and I play music on them. We were playing some music on them this morning and they sound, or uh, yesterday actually, but they sound, they sound really good for me, but I don't know if they're better than a HomePod or if they're better than a Bose speaker or if they're better than just, you know, uh, $3 earphones. I'm not an audiophile, so I don't have I don't have a good recommendation for you. I can tell you what I use, but I can also tell you that might not be right for you. And so question the things you bring into your life. Bring them in slowly, 
bring them in with intention. There are some rules that I use. I use the 30-30 rule. If something costs more than $30, I give myself 30 hours to think about that thing. If it costs more than $100, I try to give myself 30 days. There are obviously times where that's not appropriate. If there's something breaks and I really need to replace a $105 item, then yeah, I might question, do I really need to replace it? But I'm probably going to replace it in less than 30 days. But these guidelines I set up to help me determine, do I really need to bring this into my life or do I need to bring it back into my life? And it sounds to me like you would get some value from, from some speakers, but I can't tell you which brand will work for you. Check out our, our favorite things episode though. I think you'll get a lot of value in that. We did dive deep into a lot of different brands, why they're appropriate for us and why they may or may not be appropriate for you. Tristan asks, this is something I gen- I'm genuinely, genuinely curious about. You have mentioned multiple times in the past that you and Ryan used to hang out with your brother back in the old days. Since your mother has passed, how has your relationship with your brother changed? I know you don't talk about him much on the podcast, but do you still keep in contact with him? If so, how often? What about other family back in Dayton? This is an especially timely question, and I don't think you would have known this when you asked the question, Tristan, but um, there was just a terrible, uh, devastating tornado. Did you see this, Jordan? Uh, so our hometown, Dayton, Ohio, was um, was really hit. Uh, 13 tornadoes, I think, was the official count. And uh, we've been helping out with some folks there locally, um, donating personally, but also encouraging folks. So if you do want to donate to help out our hometown, the Dayton Foundation is a great place to donate. It's actually, uh, we've partnered up with them on this, this uh, co-op grocery store that we are working on as well. So the Gym City Market. Dayton Foundation is a key contributor in in that. And, um, oh man, it was just about a, a mile or so north of the downtown business district. So we're talking one of the largest cities in Ohio, fourth largest city, fourth largest metro area in Ohio was devastated by 13 tornadoes. If you look at some of the... Um, the Dayton Daily News, the the photos. I mean, we're talking entire buildings with, like apartment buildings with roofs taken off. Uh, Hera Arena, which is where I saw Sesame Street on ice as a kid, and I think that's where Sean saw the Backstreet Boys. Um, <laughs> I don't actually know. I'm sure he he probably saw Journey or Foreigner or something. Yeah, okay, Foreigner. There we go. Um, Hera Arena, a bunch of hockey games. Uh, um, who played there? The Cyclones? I forget. Bombers. Yeah, the Dayton Bombers. Yeah, I think I saw a a game or two there. Anyway, um, the whole top was like destroyed. And and so we're talking about a major U.S. city. I think the 62nd largest city in in the country. The birthplace of aviation um, has been devastated by these tornadoes. Now, thankfully, it could have obviously been worse. Only one person died, to, to my knowledge. I think 42 people were injured. So it could have been much worse. And the thing you learn about tragedies, uh, like the from from tragedies like this, is our health is the only thing that ultimately matters. The people around you are good. We can rebuild this other stuff. It's just stuff. It sucks. I've uh, several friends whose houses or their parents' houses were devastated, either by flooding or by uh, the winds, um, you know, trees falling on cars, etc. All of my friends I checked in with, and including my brother, who uh, is not in—he's he, outside of Dayton. He's in a place called Oxford, which is you, you've heard of because uh, Miami University is there. They just built a house there recently, 
and he works down in Cincinnati. And we keep in contact, yeah, but your life changes over time. Your relationships change over time too. And that's okay. I think too often we try to cling to what once was. We try to live in the rear view mirror, but you can't cling to these things. If I clap my hands right now, you can't cling to that sound. You heard it and then it's gone. You can remember that sound. You can remember what it sounded like. And if I did something really unique, like you know, made a funny face or something, you can remember that. But even then you can't cling to it. You can even go back and watch the video and re-experience it, but you're not really experiencing it the same way. You're, you're remembering it. And it's just a trigger for that memory at that point. That's why I don't go back and reread a whole lot. I, I will sometimes because I want to reference something. I want to remember the thing that I referenced before. But the same thing is true with our relationships. I think too often nostalgia keeps us living in the past, but nostalgia is really, really dangerous. Nostalgia is a, a rose-colored rear view. It's the thing I really dislike, regardless of your, your political leanings, the thing I really dislike about Make America Great Again, I love the concept of making America great because I think America is already a great idea. Anyone can move here theoretically and be an American, not because of their, uh, their race or their ethnicity or their, their cultural background. They can just be part of a collective idea and that can be great. The problem I have is with the word again, because I don't want to relitigate the past. There's a whole lot of bad things that happened in the past. We want to go back to the past. That's the problem. And so I don't want my relationship with my brother to be the same as it was when we were 14 years old. We had a closer relationship when I was 14, for sure. We, we, it's because we were inseparable, right? It's the same like same thing. I don't want my the, my relationship with my former spouse Carrie, whom I still love and we still get along. And we were we were just uh, talking this week after these tornadoes. I don't want it to be the same relationship as back then. There were great things about it, and I can appreciate those things. I can carry the appreciation forward without needing to carry the the relationship forward. Because if I'm always living in the past, I'm not making room for the beautiful present, and the potential for the future. And so my relationship with my brother, my relationship with my former spouse, my relationship with my, my high school friends and my family, I can appreciate those things. And they can still have potential for the future. Sometimes paths bifurcate, but then sometimes they come back together in a future. There was a period of time where my brother and I didn't talk a lot at all. And then a few years ago, we, we reconnected. And it wasn't because we were angry at each other or anything like that. We just took different paths that, that led, us in different, uh, d- led us to different places. And, and those paths didn't reconnect until recently. And it's possible for me to appreciate that, for him to appreciate that and move forward without having to continue to drag the past forward. I don't want to make our relationship great again. I want to have a great relationship and we can build on that foundation that we have, but I don't need to do the same thing that we did before because I want to do something different. In order to grow, you have to do something different. Jordan, you're going through this recently. Uh, Jordan is, is super fit and he's, uh, he's reached a plateau with his fitness. He, he and I were talking about it this morning. And the, 
if you were to keep doing the same thing over and over, you do, okay, I'm going to do the same 50 push-ups every day. You're not going to get, you'll, you'll maintain the plateau, but you're not going to get a different result. You have to, it's the reason P90X worked for so many people is I think they call it like body confusion or something. Yeah, muscle confusion. And I think sometimes we have to do that with our relationships when we want them to grow. We have to do different things. We can't get stuck in the same pattern because if we do the same thing over and over, we're going to get the same result. And that's not growth. It might prevent atrophy, but eventually you're going to fall into a, uh, a, a zone of comfort, the comfort zone. And that's really where you start to atrophy. And that's a problem. All right. I know I'm over on time, but we have only a few questions left. So if you'll... If you'll allow me, I'll keep going here. Oh, we have uh, Maria asked another question. What is the simple approach to learning stuff? Taking notes on a computer seems uh, to eliminate the physical clutter, but jotting on paper increases memory. Uh, jotting on paper doesn't actually increase memory. It increases your, your um, so memory, you, you have a capacity to remember only so much, right? Uh, jotting things down might help you remember things. So I think that's what it, uh, uh, Maria is saying here, but um, I do both. I write on a computer. I also walk and talk. So people often think I'm crazy uh, because I, I will talk out loud as I'm walking, especially if I'm trying to write something. I try to write auditorily, like first drafts of things, or especially if I'm working through something, I find going for a walk really helps me remember things but also organize those thoughts in an important way. I find that writing on a computer helps me organize those thoughts as well because I can copy and paste and, and, and cut and, and, and move things to different areas. And it'd be much more difficult for me to write on a typewriter uh, like some writers do or to write everything by hand. But I find it helpful to also write by hand from time to time. Uh, and so I find a combination works really well. It's sort of the muscle confusion thing there as well. Like, yeah, some of it's just having conversations. That really helps me remember something. If I have a, uh, an empowering conversation, it's give and take. And nothing helps you remember more than immersion. Well, what is the best way for you to immer uh, uh, immerse yourself into something? It's to do so with other people. So having those conversations, I remember really well. I can write down during those conversations. I can then transcribe it to a computer. And then I can try to organize my thoughts by, by walking around later. All right, finally, Beth has one more question here. How do I stop shopping for clothes when I have a high-level corporate job with a luxury retailer? I have minimized in every other area of my life and have no debt other than a mortgage and could pay off that mortgage so much faster if I stopped spending on clothing. Well, I think you have to you have to figure out what your opportunity cost is here, right? This job might mean you have to buy certain clothes. Now, that seems crazy to me that I'd have to buy high-end clothes in order to work for someone. But I think quite often we conflate or we confuse looking good with spending a lot of money. You can spend a lot of money and look awful. You know, I, I, I uh, will sometimes walk down the Sunset Strip in West Hollywood and see people wearing some very expensive things that look quite hideous to me. And, and yeah, I, I see people with like these giant Louis Vuitton bags, backpacks, and I'm like, oh, that's gross. You can still be very stylish. Again, uh, keep in mind, I'm projecting my own judgment onto them. I'm not judging them. I'm simply judging myself. Yeah, judgment is just a mirror. So me saying that's gross is really what I'm saying is that would be gross if I wore that, right? 
you can do whatever you want. Wear all the Louis Vuitton stuff you want. I'm, I'm not going to stop you. I just know for me, that's not appropriate for me. You can look stylish um, and, and also be affordable. I, I think of my mother, who was probably the most stylish person I've ever met in my life. Um, and she, she shopped exclusively at thrift stores, mainly the Goodwill, but several thrift stores where we grew up in Ohio. And she was st- so stylish. It didn't require a lot of money. We didn't have any money. But she looked so good. And part of that was just confidence, wearing it with confidence. And so maybe your the retailer you work for requires you to buy their clothes. If so, I would hope they give you a stipend. If not, if you're adding enough value to that company, then you can ask for one. But you can also show up. I'm, I'm thinking of um, Pete Buttigieg. He must wear the same outfit every single day. He looks great in it. He's a politician. He's running for president. Um, and uh, we're going to bring him on the podcast soon. Don't tell anyone, though. Uh, this is only for the true fans to know. Um, but he's running for president. I've seen him wearing a nice, crisp white shirt every day and, and dress pants and, and a blue tie. And you might say, well, it's easy for a guy to do. Yeah, it's probably easy for a guy to do. I, I recognize that. But it's not difficult. It's still simple for a woman to do. I, Nina Yao is a friend of mine, and she worked for human resources at a pharmaceutical uh, company or drugstore uh, at their corporate offices. And she th- did this experiment just to write about it where um, she didn't publish. It's not published anymore, unfortunately. I would share the link with you, but I'll tell you about it. Um, she, for an entire year, wore a black skirt or pants. I don't remember which, but black pants or skirt. So you was like, oh, that's real simple. And then a bright red sweater every single day. She, Jordan wears these uh, red glasses. Like that, that's his sort of thing. Um, and they look great on him. And Nina looked great on her. It, 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 it was great with her skin tone. Like she found something that worked really well, but she wore it every, and not like she didn't have 10 different sweaters. She wore the same outfit every day for a year to prove a point. Only twice the entire year did someone mention it to her. Once it was someone just commenting, oh, you always look really great when you wear that sweater. Didn't even recognize like, oh, you're wearing that every single day. And the other person mentioned it and said, I really like the outfit that you've put together. It looks great on you. And so even someone who works at a corporate job and, and is dealing with people every day, human resources, you're dealing with people every day. No one was noticing this bright red sweater that she wore every single day at work. So you could do that as well. It doesn't require a whole lot of clothes. It requires something that you feel good in, not something you love. I don't want you to love your clothes. I don't want you to cherish your clothes. I do want you to enjoy them, though. If you're going to have some things, you might as well enjoy those things. And then you can let go of the other stuff that you don't enjoy. All right, I'm way over on time, folks. Thank you so much for being a Patreon supporter. We really appreciate it. We've got some amazing stuff coming up on Patreon and on our podcast in general. And it's because of you, because of your support that you are making this possible. We're so grateful. All right, y'all. Love people. Use things. We'll see you next time. The Minimalists. <laughs>